0: morning again you all seem to be quiet this morning you're tired had a big weekend have you no all right let's uh let's look at the word of god this morning and it's once again it's a privilege to be able to share the word of god with you but turn with me to matthew chapter 24 gospel of matthew chapter 24 verse 1 to 8 this morning And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See so that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word that we can trust with our whole heart. Father, we pray this morning that as we look into your word that you would impart to us your truth, that the Spirit would be working on and within our hearts lord to understand and receive this truth that we might live and grow into the image of your only begotten son and father i pray that you would be with me as i seek to share this truth with my brothers and sisters here that i might challenge them to live more for you that we might redeem the time because these days are truly evil father i ask this morning that you would be glorified in the name of your son lifted up in this place I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you would be aware um, through newspapers and and, um, TV and the internet about what's happening in our world at the moment. There are some extraordinary things taking place. And when you see the the beheading of a man on a... um, on TV, um, by people who think they're doing God a service by killing uh, innocent people. Um, it, it shocks the senses, and, and you don't know how to respond sometimes. We aren't used to that sort of violence where we live. But violence has been with us from the beginning, from when Cain slew his brother. And then God had to destroy a whole world because of the violence that was there. Man has always had a, a, a bent for violence, and if we look as we look today at what's happening in the Middle East with the, with Iraq um, and with all the posturing that's going on and and the and the, the slaughter of people and. Um, and the conflicts that are taking place we see israel and it's and it's and it's uh it's struggles with hamas and um and, uh, and and palestine we see um what's happening with the tensions in russia and the ukraine and as i look and see what the world and the direction the world is going it seems to be going in in one direction the beautiful thing about about the word of god is that we know the destination. We already know where all these things or how these things are going to culminate to one particular time in history. And oftentimes we, 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 we struggle to understand You know, how do all these things fit, fit together? You know, don't, we, don't, you ever, don't you often think that when you see some extraordinary event taking place in, in the world? Do you think to yourself, how does this fit into God's program? How does this fit into the return of Christ? How do all these things fit? And this is the exact question the disciples had of Jesus when they were were there looking at the temple. And I'll I'll talk a bit more about that. But they had a a question and they said, you know, how about this? And Jesus gave them an answer that absolutely floored them. And then they said, well, when, when is this going to happen? When is all this thing going to come to pass? And Jesus spends the next two chapters of Matthew with an answer. I commenced a few weeks ago a, uh, a series of devotions, going through Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And having thought about um, that, those series of devotions, I thought it would be a good time for us to, to look at them in a bit more depth. I had a conversation yesterday, and the conversation went along the lines of, do you remember how, how long ago my series on Revelation was? <laughs> now, don't be scared. <laughs> Not how long it was, how long ago it was. Um, that was about four, at least four years ago, I think now. Sorry, you've got a... to... 2011. 2011, all right. Well, it's, 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 look it's probably time it's good for us to recap some of those things. Um, I won't be going through the series of Revelation again, um, because it was quite a long series. I think it took us about a year and a half. Was it about a year and, and a half? I think Tomorrow, Hey, tomorrow, have you got the data uh, the on that one over there?. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, <laughs> Tomorrow's our statistician over here at the church.. <laughs> Um, but I thought, it would, I thought it'd be a good time for us to start recapping and looking again at those things. There's obviously a number of new faces here that weren't that didn't go through that series, and we went through it with a fine tooth comb, looking at every verse and and comparing verses with verses. And and I thought it would be a good idea for us to go through Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And I'll be in the next few weeks, or in the coming weeks, I will be correlating that with with Revelation and the book of Daniel and, and Ezekiel and Isaiah and how all these things fit together. And hopefully by the end of it, we'll have a greater understanding of God's program for this world and how what we see around us fits into that program. I know many people get excited when we start talking about, you know, prophecy and Revelation. And, 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 and that's good. It's good to be excited about the Word of God. I often... I, I, for me it's a, it's a two-edged sword in a sense I get excited to, to know that God is in control of all things And we know the program We know it from now um, Before it reaches there But I get saddened when I think to myself That the, the depravity of man And how many lives will be lost in eternity Because of man's sinfulness And, and his rejection of God So for me it's a, it's a bit of a two-edged sword but why do we need to study prophecy? Well, a good third of the Bible is prophecy. Think about that. Hold your Bible in your hand, and a third of it is related to what's going to come. Okay, and God has made it a big part of His agenda to tell us what's coming before it actually happens. And and that's good because that teaches us and it actually confirms to us that God is not just in control. Not that God. Just knows what's going to happen in the future, but that God has determined the end from the beginning. He's in control. It's good for us to know. Now, to give you a bit of background, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 are almost repeated in Mark and Luke. So we find this passage, okay, although Matthew is the longest in in terms of the detail that he gives. is repeated three times in Scripture. And when God repeats things a number of times, you know it's important. And God has chosen to repeat this passage three times, although each of them gives a different emphasis on it. Why study prophecy? One, because God thinks it's important for us to study prophecy. God wants us to understand His Word and how it fits together. Okay? It increases our faith and our trust in God, knowing that he understands the end from the beginning. When you're a child, think about this. A child learns to trust his parents. Why? Because a child believes that the parents know what's going on. When was a time when you stopped trusting your parents? When you became a te- teenager and you thought what you knew was going on, more than your parents. Do you understand that? But if you understand and believe that your parents understand what's going on, they're aware of it, and they've they've got a certain amount of control. You trust your parents and their decision-making. But if you believe that the people who have authority over you have no idea what's going on, and you know better than them, guess what you're going to try and do? You're going to try and take things into your own hands. So, if we study the Word of God, and we understand and come to appreciate how God has everything under control, He knows perfectly what's going on. There is nothing that escapes his attention. It will cause us to trust him more and to stop taking things into our own hands, you see. (coughs) Knowing the end of the story increases our confidence and our faith. We know the outcome of the story. We know the end. And if we know the end, we too won't be surprised. We know that, this, that the outcome will be good. And it also helps us to understand one very important thing. That the primary character, the person, the theme of all the Scripture, whether it's prophecy from the beginning in Genesis to the end of Revelation, centres around one, the Lord Jesus Christ. It centres around him. From the one who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, To the one who will come back in the end, in Revelation, to take up his rightful throne in this world. It's about him from beginning to end. If we understand anything about scripture, if we understand anything about the Bible, it's that it's a story about not us, not about Israel, not about anything else, but about him. It's the way he deals with mankind. It's a, a story about his nature, his character, his love, his patience, his justice. The story of the fall of man and all of our intricacies and all of our meddlings and problems and throughout all of history only revolves around him and how he deals with us. This is a story about Jesus. So let's go back. It says that Jesus went out and he departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. What had happened up to this point? Well, Jesus had made the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember? Sitting on, on an ass and, and they were throwing their clothes in front of him and, and waving uh, branches to, to, to signify that the Messiah had come. Okay, So a number of people had gone before him and, and they were celebrating the fact that, he had, that the, the chosen Messiah, the one that had been promised from the Garden of Eden, had finally arrived to take up his rightful place as King of Israel. And Jesus was now spending his days teaching in the temple. So during the day, he'd go to the temple, his disciples would all go with him, and there'd be multitudes of people listening to him in the temple. And then in the evening, when he'd finished with that, He'd he'd retire with his disciples and he'd instruct his disciples by evening about what he would have them to do. And this is where our story begins, you see. Because it says in one particular day, Jesus had finished his teaching in the temple, okay, when people had listened to what he had to say. And it says he departed in verse 1. He departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See you not all these things. Verily I say unto you, There shall not be here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus had finished teaching in the temple and they were walking out. And his disciples came to him and said, Have a look at these and have a look at that. Does that strike you strange that his disciples are showing in the temple when he was teaching in the temple? And no doubt he'd seen the temple a number of times. What were they showing him? What's the scripture talking about here? Is it, does, it, does it make sense? When I first read it, I thought, what would they be showing him? Something that he, he obviously knew already. What's going on? Well, turn to Mark chapter 13. Remember I said to you there are three accounts of the same, the same thing. And each of them gives a slightly different emphasis. And look at, look at Mark. Mark gives us a little bit more detail than Matthew in this particular place. It says in Mark chapter 13 verse 1, it says, And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples saith unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now what were they trying to do to Jesus? They were trying to save... Look how wonderful this thing is. They were trying to impress him and say, Have you noticed how fantastic this temple is over here, Lord? You're not really paying much attention to it, but look how magnificent it is. They're trying to impress him because they themselves were impressed with their own building. It becomes clear from Jesus' response and from, from the Gospel of Mark, that they were trying to emphasize the grandeur of the temple. They were clearly impressed. And they wanted Jesus to be impressed as well. Have you ever done that in your life? Yeah, when you've ever seen something on TV and you thought, wow, that's awesome. The first thing you want to do is what? Is you want someone else to see it's awesome as well. So you'll go and quickly grab someone else. That's what social media is all about as well. People take photographs of their breakfast because they think it's so awesome. <laughs> they want everyone else to know about it as well. <coughs> we're not progressing we're not getting any better we're getting worse okay so in this particular place they are impressed with this building they're trying to they're, he's trying this disciple trying to get Jesus' attention and say look lord how wonderful this thing is over here and they were naturally proud of their temple they were naturally proud of it it was one of the probably most magnificent buildings in those days in the world temple was, was quite an impressive building. I'll just give you some quick a quick rundown. The, te- the, the temple was not an exact uh, rectangle, but it, it, so it was about 280 metres on one wall, 460 metres on another wall, 315 metres on another wall and 485 It was in total 144,000 square metres of space. Now that is big. To give you an idea of how big that is, the MCG... Which is an impressive building in itself, is about a hundred square, hundred thousand square meters. So the temple is is one and a half, almost one and a half times bigger than the MCG in terms of all its land, not just not just the oval, but the whole thing from one end to the other. Now the the the, the Temple Mount was ten stories high, and its height above street level was thirty meters and with an additional 20 metres underground, which was made of hewn rock, measuring between two to five tonnes each. This is an impressive structure. For those of you who've been there, and I know, what are you looking at when you look at the Wailing Wall? Is it a wall? Is it the wall, or is it more of a foundation you're looking at? This thing was designed to actually... House or, or have about 100,000 visitors during their festivals, you know, during their, the, the, the festivals they used to have. So imagine 100,000 people crammed into this thing, but it was one and a half times the size of the MCG. Actually, interesting point. MCG. The biggest crowd at the MCG ever in history. Do you know what it was? There you go. Billy Graham's Crusade held 130,000 people that was the biggest crowd the MCG has ever seen in its history and will not see anything higher than that. You know why? Because the laws have changed and they won't allow that, that number there any, anymore anyway so that's locked because <laughs> it's against the law to have more people. Okay so the, the, the disciples have gone to Jesus, they're, they're trying to impress him by showing him you know, that this building um, made with human hands but have you noticed that sometimes that sounds a little bit strange? Imagine trying to impress the Son of God, the creator of the universe, with a building made with human hands, and say, isn't that magnificent? It's a bit strange, isn't it? It's a bit like it's a bit like an ant trying to impress an elephant with the size of its anthill. And Jesus um, doesn't exactly give him the answer that he was probably hoping for. He was probably hoping for something on the lines of, yes, it is magnificent, isn't it? Now, Jesus responds with, see see all these buildings? Look at verse 2. Seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another, that shall not be thrown down. Now, talk about deflating someone's... Uh, raining on someone's parade or whatever else it is. um, It would have completely deflated that person. Can you imagine the look on their faces? After all this excitement they'd built up about this thing, Jesus comes along and says, look, tell you the truth. See all this? There's not going to be anything left of it. It's going to go. Now what do you imagine would have started working on their minds? What would they have started thinking? What are you talking about? You're the Messiah. This is the place where you're going to be ruling from. When is this going to happen? This, this wasn't in our plan. We didn't think this was going to happen. It took you know, so long to build this temple. It took over 46 years to build the temple. How are they going to knock this whole thing down? You know something? God isn't impressed with man's achievements, He isn't impressed. The Lord wasn't impressed with the the building that that men had put up with their own hands. You see, because how do you house the the God who who inhabits the entire universe and beyond in a building? How do you impress a being like that? God isn't impressed with with the, the works of our hands. You know, there's a lot of things that God isn't impressed with, man. He isn't impressed with our wisdom. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 1. I'll share with you a few things so you we get a perspective on man's boasting to God and how useful it actually is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. Says For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You see, the cross, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those people who seek after wisdom and think that it's not intellectually satisfying to to have a story about a God who sent his son to the world to die for the sins of the world. For the intellectuals of our society, they struggle with that whole concept. It, it, It actually offends them. That, that, that an, an all-righteous God would do something like that. It doesn't satisfy their natural intellectual bent. But God says, I'm going to take all your wisdom and I'm going to throw it out the door. And I'm going to show you what love is all about. And this is how I'm going to show it to you. With something so simple and so pure. That even the simplest person in this world can understand and grasp that type of love. You don't need to be an intellectual uh, heavyweight in order to, to grasp and understand God. You see, we're not into Gnosticism here. We're not into intellectual superiority. This is not about who knows the most. Because the simplest person can grasp the truth of God and can live it more fully than the smartest person. And God made it so simple that a peasant farmer could appreciate that and be totally transformed in their life to receive the power of God in their life. That's why Jesus was able to take a group of fishermen, people that were almost regarded as not the lowest in society, and do amazing things with them. And God can do amazing things with us. God is not interested in our wisdom all the wisdom of this world, it doesn't impress him. You know, when I see, when you see articles in the newspaper that they discovered some new thing, you know, that science has discovered, you know, the Higgs boson, uh, you know, particle, and we've we've been smashing particles for the last, you know, five years, and we've discovered that there's this particle that that binds atoms together. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. And God saying in the background, I made that. I knew that long time ago I knew it before it was even made all of man's greatest achievements in science and philosophy and literature and art whatever, whatever realm you want to go into and, and buildings or whatever else it is don't impress God God isn't impressed by our, by our achievements as people How foolish it is to boast before God in anything. Turn to Matthew chapter three, verse eight. John the Baptist is, is in this in this passage. He's baptising people to repentance. And he has a number of people come to him who want, who, who want to, to get their lives right with God because John is proclaiming that the Messiah is about to come. You see, John was the forerunner for Jesus. He was preparing the way for him. And at this particular stage, some Pharisees, some of the religious leaders of their, of, of their day... He arrived as well to be baptised and John said, who, who, who called, who told you to come here and be baptised? And he calls them a brood of vipers and he calls them a lot of other nasty names because he knows how manipulative these people are. And that they were there not, not to really uh, do the right thing, but they were there to suss things out and to work out how they might um, uh, work against John. But he says in verse eight of chapter three, he says, "Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance." In other words, if you're going to say you've repented, which means changed your mind about things and you want to change your life and and live it the way God wants you to live it, then show me by your fruits. Don't just speak it. Show me. In verse 9 it says, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you that God is able to of these stones to raise up children of Abraham. You see, one of the things that held back these people, one of the things they were very proud of, is that they were descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's our lineage. That's who we're from. We are the seed of Abraham. Abraham. They were more concerned about impressing God with who they knew and who they were connected with, thinking that God would be impressed by their lineage, thinking that God would be impressed by by their ancestry. Tell me, how many people do the same today? How many people um, are proud of the denomination of church in. as if being connected with some denomination is somehow going to impress God I was a Baptist from the first Baptist church in Melbourne and, and do you think when you stand before God that he's going to be impressed with what church you joined up with do you think he's going to be impressed with your lineage I come from some fantastic stock of Christians We've been faithful from the beginning and I've been, I'm have been i a part of that generation. That's great. If you come from, a, from a, a line of Christians who've been faithful to God, that is absolutely wonderful. And you are blessed because you've had that heritage. But do you think you can rely on that heritage when you stand before God one day? God's not impressed with your heritage because each of us will have to stand before God ourselves. And we won't have. Our heritage standing behind us to impress God. Each of us will have to give an account of ourselves. God's not impressed with the people that we know, with the heritage that we come from, with our connections in this world. God doesn't really care about those things. It doesn't impress him. The word of God simply teaches that you and I and everyone else Will one day stand before God's throne and give an account for themselves by themselves. Think about that. By yourself, no one around to 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 um, to give you a recommendation or a reference. No one else to say, you know, he was a, he was a good guy. He helped me that uh, that particular day over there. You'll be standing before God one day to give an account of your life and what you've done with it. And if we expect to impress God with our connections and our friends and our, our family and our churches and what connections we had in our life, then think again. And finally, God is not not impressed with our goodness. Isaiah, and and Eddie brought this up in his prayer this morning, Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That's the way God sees us. Nothing to impress. In fact man is so laden with sin that oftentimes he can't even see how much sin he has. And we spend the rest of our lives praying to God once we're saved to reveal more and more sin within us. The depths of our sin is, is quite dramatic when you think about it. God isn't impressed with our righteousness or our goodness. There is nothing we can come to God and say, God, look at who I am. Look at what I've done. Look at my righteousness. Look how much effort I put into this thing. If you expect God to be impressed, think again. There is nothing that you can bring to God that will impress him in and of your own self. Salvation is genuinely salvation in God's economy because it's a gift that's received undeserved, not worked for, not merited in any particular way. There is nothing we can do to earn what he's done for us at Calvary. That's why Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God will not allow boasting in his economy. God will not allow anyone to come before his throne and, and, and say, I did it my way. Salvation, understand this, salvation in essence is an exchange that took place. It's an exchange, a swap. Jesus took my place on the cross. He took my sin upon himself. Everything evil and sinful, and insincere, and duplicitous, he took upon himself everything that I've ever done and would do. He took that upon himself, and he paid for that with his blood. And because when he took all my evil upon himself, it left me with nothing. Nothing. Because there was nothing good in me either, you see. He didn't just pay the penalty of my offences. He then went and did something else, which to me is utterly unbelievable. He took my offences by paying them on a cross. And then when I found myself with my penalties paid for, I found myself naked. With nothing good to show God. So then what he did is he took all of his righteousness... His goodness and he clothed me in it. Does that not excite you? To understand that the goodness of Jesus, and the apostle John says that if 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 we were to write everything, you know, and record everything that Jesus had ever done, it would fill up every all the books in the world, all the books in the world would not be enough to actually write down all the good that Jesus did. He ascribed that to me. So I am now not just had my penalties paid for, but he's now clothed me with the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at me, he doesn't just see someone whose sins have been forgiven. He sees someone who is perfectly guiltless in front of him. And he also sees a righteousness in my life and I'm, that I'm clothed with that didn't come from me didn't come from inside here but came from my Saviour now that is an unbelievable transaction that is an unbelievable swap there is nothing that you could ever do in your life that will give you that sort of result there is nothing you could ever do there was no gift that anyone could ever give you that would even come close to that So let's remember that that is the most important gift that we have ever received. And how we live that life now is now the most important thing that we do. Because now that we've had our sins paid for and been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, what is it that we are going to do with ourselves? What is it that we do with this time that we've been given? God is not impressed with anything we have to bring. What God is impressed with is His own Son. And you and I, if we have put our faith in Him, the Bible says that we now have Him within us, clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When God sees us, He sees His Son. Amazing story. Now, I think I'm going to go well beyond time if I continue with uh, this sermon but I'll go a little bit more let's continue with the story in verse 3 in chapter, Matthew chapter 24 it says they've left the temple they've, the disciples have gone to Jesus and said look look, Lord how wonderful these buildings are Jesus basically said to them you um, guys I need you to understand there's not going to be anything left of this building It's all going to be torn down. So then they walk, the Bible says, to the Mount of Olives in verse 3. So I would imagine that in their mind, that as they're walking to that place, they're probably talking amongst, as the disciples used to do quite often, talk among themselves about, what what is he talking about here? Where's he going? So then you find... In verse three, it says, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Who went to him? Well, once again, Mark gives us a little bit more detail than Matthew. So turn to Mark chapter 13. Mark tells us, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things shall be, and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be filled. So so Mark gives us a little bit more information. He says it was those four that came to Jesus. Obviously, they'd been talking amongst themselves. And they said, let's go and ask him about what's going, what's going to happen. You see, because in their minds, to destroy that temple... It would have had to be the end of the world. It would have had to be something so dramatic, so bad, that it must have signified the end of time. That's why they've linked all these things together. Now, Jesus answers, and notice they've given, they've asked him a number of these things. Tell us when these things shall be. What things? Well, the very things that he told them, that that, that, that building would one day come down. When shall these things be? He'd only told them about the destruction of the temple. But then they, they asked him some more questions. What shall be the sign of thy coming? His return. So they knew that he would he would be departing and then have to come back. And then they asked him, and when is the end of the world going to be? So in, in, in essence, they were asking three separate questions, although possibly in their minds, those things were all exactly linked together and coincided for the, at the same time. And Jesus spends the next... Two chapters of Matthew answering those questions in, in amazing detail. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you something else as well. Because this thing, this particular two chapters have a name. It's been given a name because of where they were. You see, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. Must have, must have been one of his favourite places to, to spend time with his disciples and teach them. This These two chapters are what's called in uh, in. in scholarly circles as the Olivet Discourse you may have heard that term before this is the Olivet Discourse and this is the study that I'll be taking you through over the next few weeks Jesus will answer not only the questions they've asked but he will give them a lot more than they expected in this Um, I'll just close with, with an idea They asked him one question. The the, the first question was, when will these things be? Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. The Romans went in there. um, The Jews were giving them too much problems. And they decided to tear the whole thing down. And to the people in Jerusalem, it must have seemed like the end of the world. It must have seemed like it was the end when their beloved temple was being torn down. In front of their eyes. The Romans wouldn't have been very nice about the thing either. I'm sure that many people would have been slaughtered at the same time. Who protested. Let me ask you a question. What are you afraid of today? I could imagine the fear in those people's hearts and minds when they saw the Roman armies surround the Jerusalem. And the fear would have been, I would imagine, quite thick. But let me ask you a question this morning. What are you afraid of? What fears do you have? You know, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars and, and you see things happening around you, how much fear do you have? Are you afraid? We're going to look next week and see what Jesus' response is to the disciples' question about the things that would come upon them. And one of the answers he gives them is, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Don't be troubled when Siri starts talking in the middle of a sermon. (laughs) I want, to, I want to leave you with this thought before you before you um, leave today. And it's simply this, that the Bible teaches us that perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. The apostles who had followed Christ, most of them who had followed Christ as his disciples when he was walking the earth, most gave up their lives willingly for what they believed. Thousands of Christians were burned at the stake, were thrown to the lions, and did it willingly and with great boldness. Why? Because they understood how much God loved them. They trusted him. And and that love that he had for them sustained them through the worst possible times that any person could imagine. Now, what's your relationship with Jesus like today? What is it that you fear? If you had to think about it, what are you afraid of? And the next question would be, why are you afraid? What do you fear? Do you fear losing your job? Do you fear getting sick? Do you fear the sickness of a loved one? Do you fear wars? Do you fear earthquakes? Do you fear your government? Do you fear the police? Do you fear robbers and and bandits and and whoever else? Do you live in fear in your life? There's no reason to live in fear. Because if you walk with Jesus Christ as your Saviour and you understand how much He loves you, even though you may lose your life, even though, and understand this, That your earthly life is not the gauge and the the, the lifestyle you live is not the gauge of God's love for you. Your circumstances do not tell you how much God God loves you. Don't measure the love of God by the circumstances that you find yourself in. Because oftentimes we, we find ourselves in circumstances that we have created ourselves. And then we blame God for them, don't we? God, how did you let me get here? But understand this: the Apostle Paul went through shipwrecks, beatings, imprisonment, and finally, he lost his life for what he believed. Because of his relationship with Christ, the apostles all gave up their lives. The only one who didn't, who we who, who we know didn't necessarily, was the, uh, the Apostle John. But even he was was exiled and 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 locked up on an island, away from everyone else. Understand that these people didn't look at your circumstances and say, God, why did you allow me to you know to, to come here? Why am I going through so much suffering? Don't you love me? Why am I, why are you letting me go through this? Understand they all died. Died. Burnt at the stake, eaten by eaten by lions alive. Lit up as torches and and done the most terrible things to And they didn't question God's love for them. Why? Because they knew and had experienced God's love and they didn't question it. They knew that their circumstances didn't change God's love for them. They knew that He was with them every step of the way. They knew that their Saviour went through the sufferings before them and He won. That's why Paul can write, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Now, understand this. If people find, if you find yourself in distress and persecution, famine, nakedness, you don't have the clothes to put on your back, peril, sword. Paul says, none of those things separate me from, from Christ's love. None of those things show me that Jesus doesn't love me anymore. Because he says, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. Think of it. He's saying, for, for his sake, we die, We are dying all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. My question to you this morning and my challenge to you is this Do you trust the love of God enough to see you through your worst fears? Do you trust Him? Even though things might not go. Any- going the way you expect, do you trust him? As Job once said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Let's look at this again next week. God bless you.